Hi, for those of you who don't know, my name is Mike Mayashiro. Um, I just jumped on staff here with Grace Point a couple months ago. And um, today I'm going to talk to you about radical, being radically inclusive in our crash course on progressive Christianity. So this is going to be fun. Uh, before I get into any of that, I just want to make sure um, everyone knows about the screening of 1946 here on October 29th at 4 p.m. Um, for those of you who don't know what this movie is about, 1946, this movie um, does the work of showcasing how the word homosexual entered the English translation of the Bible in 1946, which wasn't that long ago. Um, it's a journalistic documentary. It's very well done. So if you haven't seen it, it's not publicly available anywhere. So this is a, a unique opportunity. Come join the private screening again, October 29th, 4 p.m. Um, I'm friends with a few of the people in the film, and they just do a great job um, objectively, as, as objectively as you can be, like laying out data and facts and getting to the root of how did we get here? How did this happen? And what kind of harm is being done from these errors? So I uh, hope you come check that out. Online community, we are working out to see if we can get you to be able to stream into it. Right now, we're not able to do that. So we are, we're still working on it, and we will let you know as soon as we have any more word on that. So sorry for not having that yet. Um, okay, so uh, if I'm new to you, um, I grew up in the Baptist world as a gay person, which was super fun for me. Um, and I, I'm gonna, I want to share some of my story just to give you some context for where I'm coming from on this, especially because I think some of us you know, don't know me super well, and I'd love to bridge that gap. And then kind of get into, like, what, what does it look like to be radically inclusive um, as a people, you know? So um, in the wake of Andy Stanley hosting an event, a conference called Unconditional for Parents of Queer Kids, the event is basically, like, helping parents in evangelicalism who have queer kids, like, get permission to be humane to their kids and like how to care for them, which to me is like so frustrating. But then Andy got on stage at his church that following Sunday and kind of asserted that his church teaches a New Testament sexual ethic, that marriage is between one man and one woman, that their stance on same-sex sex is that it's sin. And then he cited the three clobber passages in the New Testament. And when I saw that, I could not believe what was happening? I was like, is this a joke? Are you kidding me? Like, what do you, what is going on? I was so upset. Of course, there's nuance and layers depending on where you're coming from to looking at this. But as a gay man in the Christian world, I don't have a ton of like wiggle room here. I'm like, that's not okay. I don't care how much influence you have. I don't care like who all is involved. Affirming theology that has historically been proven time and time again to dehumanize and harm a whole people group is not okay. Um, and I'm, that's my opinion. I'm not representing Grace Point when I say that, although I'm sure, you know, people here probably share similar sentiments, but I was like baffled and indignant. And so I'm preaching a message on being radically inclusive with that having just happened a couple weeks ago in our country. And I'm like, this is, it's 2023. It's so frustrating to me that we are still having this conversation, that it's still something that people want to debate about. And anyway, so, um, as I like wrestle through and process out, what is it, what do I do? How do I respond to stuff like this that just continues to happen, right? Like the emotional labor of being a queer person, having to, be, to revisit this over and over and over again is exhausting and so frustrating. Um, and it's, 
like kind of difficult to not feel like queer friendly or queer affirming churches aren't just like a representation of like another segregation of a different targeted group of colored people. Um, like, how do we not see this? How are we still doing this, right? And so um, I could spend the, our whole time just like railing against the absurdity and hypocrisy and <sighs> frustrating reality that we're having to navigate here. Um, but I want to take us somewhere maybe a little bit more personal. Um, I've had to like change my posture and response to all this hate and toxicity because for a long time, the way that I survived being queer in an evangelical world was to ignore that this was happening, to deny that it was a thing, that I had anything to do with it, just avoid it entirely. Um, that was my survival reaction. That's what I did to survive. I didn't know how else to like, process and be in that space. Um, and so I want to just kind of give you some context for where that came from. Um, but before I tell you my story, I just need to give you one disclaimer. I'm a little bit woo-woo. Uh, I don't, I'm not trying to be that way. I wasn't looking to be like this, but I understand, especially in a space like this, that's probably worth acknowledging. <laughs> so feel free to interpret and filter and translate what I say to you today, however you need to, to make it functional. Um, but like I said, I was raised Baptist, and then when I was 18, I started having some like, spiritual experiences that I didn't have a grid for, that my theology didn't have context for. My community, my church leaders didn't really know what to do with what I was experiencing. Um, and the language I would use to describe that was like, I, I met God. Like there was this divine presence that was incredibly personal and like loving feels like an understatement and humble and gracious and kind toward me that I didn't know. Like I'd studied and talked about God, my, most of my life, I didn't know that you could experience God. And I'm putting the air quotes on there because, again, like filter and translate how you want, but I was having intense, like visceral encounters with, I don't know, like a divine person, I don't know, um, that was changing my life. It was incredibly emotional and like wrecking me. And my theology, when I arrived to these experiences, did not hold a candle to what I was being affected by, what was happening to me. And, and in these experiences, I was being communicated with, and this divine presence was affirming me as a gay person. Like, they wanted me to be gay, and I could not tell anybody that this was coming up because none of us would have believed me, right? They would, everyone would have known that I was being deceived and, like, listening to a demon who is masking themselves as a being of light or whatever, right? Um, so anyway... Uh, these experiences led me on a pilgrimage that took me on a journey, and I'm gonna skip a bunch of the drama there because we don't have time for it today, but there is something that happened in that experience that I wanted to share in light of this conversation. So I was on a tropical island somewhere in the middle of the Pacific Ocean when I was praying one night and basically just telling God I wanted to, my life to be like a window for them to express themselves and like show us what they cared about and what they wanted to go after. And I fell asleep praying that, and that night I had a dream. I was standing outside of the tomb where Jesus was buried, and I was trying to get where Jesus was, but between me and the tomb was a woman in a red corporate power suit. Why, I don't know, I can't answer that, but um, we were arguing, just going back and forth, like I was trying to get past her and I couldn't, and for whatever reason she had authority over the estate. And finally she goes, okay, fine, 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 fine. We'll get in there, we'll get his garments, you can have those, but you have to drop this, and his blood is no longer on my company's hands. 
And I fired back immediately, no, I want his dreams back from the dead. And then I woke up, like out of a dead sleep, and I was like, what just happened? And so I scribbled down everything from that dream I could, because I knew something significant just took place. I don't understand it, I don't know where this is going, but this is changing my life, oh God, right? So I went on a journey, and again, skipping a bunch of drama, I eventually moved to a place called Redding, California, um, to be part of a church called Bethel Church. And just so I have a grid for who I'm talking to, how many of you in this room know about Bethel Church in Redding, California? Okay, so a half, interesting. The other half of you, <laughs> Bethel Church is a megachurch in the charismatic stream of Christianity. Um, they're known for chasing miracles and practicing prophecy and healing. Um, they are very centered around the presence of God and the tangible presence of the Holy Spirit. And then you can get into weirder stuff, but that's kind of the gist. Um, and so I went there because like, I had to do some research. I had to like explore and like uncover, like where is this coming from? What am I experiencing? What are Jesus' dreams back from the dead? I don't know, but these people seem to have a grid for dream interpretation and seem to think that the divine communicates to us through this. So like, yeah, there's a lot of reasons for how I ended up going there, but um, I ended up going to the school, Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. And if you're thinking that's like Harry Potter for Christians, and you were correct. Christian Hogwarts. Christian Yeah, so I did first and second year there. On the second day of first year, I saw a woman sitting in a chair as I was going to class, and I felt something in me, like powerfully compelling me to befriend her. I didn't know anybody at school. So I like literally jumped over like rows of chairs and like plopped in front of her and was like, hey, is someone sitting there? And pointed at the chair next to her with her bag. And there were 13 empty, empty chairs along the row. I'm pointing to the chair next to her. I was like, is someone sitting there? She's like, no. It's like, can I sit there? <laughs> she was like, okay. Moves her bag. I sit down. We became fast friends. I kind of postured her like a mentor to me. She taught me a lot about discernment in the spirit world. Um, a lot of things I've had to recover from since. Uh, but she also had kind of a spooky vibe to her. Like she just, I don't know, she knew stuff that, like, that she shouldn't have been able to know and she was awkwardly accurate and consistently demonstrated, like, I don't understand how she can do this, but homegrown knows stuff. Kind of like a witch or a psychic was kind of the vibe that she carried, you know? And so a couple months into school, I pulled her aside and was like, hey, I, want your, I need your help. Um, and I came out to her. Uh, but coming out at that point was basically I told her I struggled with being attracted to men. Can she help me? So she, um, we went to the side of my apartment complex under some trees and she sozoed me. Anybody here know what that means? Less, okay. Um, <laughs> so Bethel has an inner healing model that they call Sozo, and it's basically a certain way of like doing inner healing ministry on people or, and or deliverance, should it get to that. Um, so I wanted her to deliver me, to like find the demon or the, the issue, the trauma, the whatever, and heal it, fix it, change it, right? So she sews on me and nothing happened. Um, and we moved on, moved on with our lives. But every once in a while at school, there would be these opportunities for gay people to be ministered to. I remember there was this one service where the prophet of the house was preaching. And in the middle of his sermon, he had an altar call for gay people. And he was like, hey, if you struggle with being attracted to someone of the same gender, stand up. The Holy Spirit is going to heal you. You're going to get delivered of a homosexual spirit. And so some few brave or crazy or whatever people stood up. And I'm like, what are you doing? Why would you do this? Right? Like, 
And so we got like maybe five people in the room of like 400 people for this smaller service. Um, and my friend's like nudging me like, and I'm like, don't touch me. And she's like typing on her phone, like, I feel like this is God. This is your moment. Like the Lord is leading you to this. This is your healing, your breakthroughs right now. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to let God tell me that. Um, so I didn't stand up because I'm not an idiot. Because um, like if something doesn't happen to them, if they don't get healed, if they don't get delivered, what happens, right? They don't get to recover from this moment. They will be socially stigmatized for the rest of their time there. Um, and I'm like, that's a bummer. I'm sorry you guys made this decision and that you risked it. I hope something great happens for you, but man, that's not a great move in my opinion. Um, anyway, fast forward on the last day of second year, they have a knighting ceremony where the head apostle and the head prophet, it sounds weird talking about them like this because I know these human beings, but just contextually, it's faster. And they're holding like medieval swords. Like, I'm not making this up. And this ceremony is like proof that we weren't a cult, right? And they're like... <laughs> knighting you as you're graduating from this journey in this class. And so I got knighted and went through. And that the, when I got out of that, um, I got pulled into the principal's office, basically. Um, and I found out that that friend that I came out to outed me to the pastors. And so they were deeply concerned and like <laughs> had a problem that they needed to fix. And so the short version of the story goes, like graduation was in se seven hours, right? Like the ceremony was that evening. And they're like, we cannot graduate you. And I was like, oh, what? Whoa, okay. This isn't going well how I thought. I don't understand what's happening. Um, and it was like a traumatizing experience. Um, I left everything I knew and had to get Jesus' dreams back from the dead. And I just got kicked out of ministry school. And I'm pretty sure this is not how that's supposed to happen. Oh, no, right? So I got put on a purity plan. I keep like walking around this lecture. Um, so I got put into the men's sexual purity group, which was basically the sexual addicts anonymous group of the church. And at that point I was a very repressed gay person. So I basically had no sexuality. Um, and I'm sitting in these small group circles and these guys are like telling me, you know, about how often they're masturbating every day and what kind of porn they're looking at and what they're doing with prostitutes and what they're doing at the gas station. And I'm like shocked at what I'm hearing. I'm like, you're doing what with whom and like why like I don't this is not my experience I am not familiar with any of this stuff and I'm like what am I doing here I don't know that I'm supposed to be in this group um I got put in this I they picked a certain counselor at the transformation center and I had to do some sozo sessions with this person and so I was like okay get the demons out shoot me with lightning I don't care like let's let's do the thing and none of that happened and he's like you're good to go Mike and I'm like no, I'm, what are you talking about? Nothing happened. Like, <laughs> I'm the same person. I know, how are you done? He's like, there's nothing wrong with you. And I don't know, I don't think this guy was affirming, but he had like explored my relationship with my dad and my mom and my siblings and my childhood and tried to like find if there was any traumatic memories that were repressed. And like, there's a lot of, you know, and he's like, I, there's nothing wrong with you. You're good. And I'm like, okay. So I ended up working with another counselor who was the son of the head prophet of the school, of the church. And I, this was the turning point for me where I was like, oh, I don't think that we know what we're doing here. He was like, Mike, of course I would never suggest that you do this, but like if we put you in a room and had you have sex with like Brazilian bikini models over and over again, eventually you'd learn to like it. And I was like, this is happening right now. <laughs> All right. So at that point, I realized, like, oh, this place doesn't have an answer for me. They don't have a solution. They don't have any, like, actual path for me to follow that's going to, like, 
give me hope or freedom or happiness or fulfill. Like they don't have it. Okay, that sucks. So the closet was the solution, right? Just, okay, I'm going to make it work in here. That's what I get to experience. Um, I think I also have like speakers come in sometimes, once in a while, like Cy Rogers. I don't know if you guys know who that person was, but he came and spoke at our school and he used to be a cross-dresser is what they said back then. And you know, had a bunch of illicit sex with a bunch of guys and then got, got saved and then married a woman and had kids. And like, he was now the poster child of like, this is the path that gay people are supposed to go on. And I didn't relate to either end of his experience. I'm like, the only thing we have in common is that we're attracted to men, but like, what? Like, what kind of representation is this? And it was, it was a very biased narrative around gay people and their existence in the world. And there was a very specific path that we all had to go down. And I experienced my version of that. And I was like, this is not wholeness. This is not freedom. Okay, I'm going to just not receive help from this group of people here, right? Um, anyway, so after that, I got hired on staff <laughs> at this church, and I don't know if this is like Stockholm Syndrome, like why I didn't just like walk away. I, I like got more involved, so I started working there, and then they started asking me to like lead mission trips for the school and take interns for the internship that I wasn't eligible to be part of, and then like start teaching in the school that kicked me out. Um, and then I started like traveling and speaking all over the world. And that head prophet guy started sharing my social media writings on his social media. And I started developing an online presence and this platform and this brand and this whatever started growing. And the more successful I became, the more public and visible and like the more notoriety I experienced, the thicker those closet walls or doors became, right? The stakes just got higher and higher. And I think it just started getting harder and harder to breathe. And I just kept making do with the lung capacity I had at that point. And so six years from that dream on that tropical island, I was at a church in Portland and about to preach and it's in the middle of worship. And that dream starts looping in my head without my consent. Like I wasn't trying to think about it. It just started on repeat, right? We'll get in there. We'll get his garments. You can have those, but you got to drop this. His blood is no longer on my company's hands. No, I want his dreams back from the dead, right? Over and over again. And so finally I was like, God, are you trying to say something to me? Like, this is really distracting. I'm like, I gotta preach. Like, is this you? And the moment zeroed in, and again, like filter this how you need to, but I heard in somewhere inside of me very clearly, Mike, it's you. You're it. You're my dream back from the dead. And uh, I was not prepared. I was not ready to hear that. That wasn't, what am I supposed to do with that, you know? So I'm like crying, I'm like crying. I gotta preach in five minutes. I'm like, oh God. <sighs> like one, it's a beautiful sentiment, right? I was surprised. It was like an M. Night Shyamalan moment where like something happens at the end of the film that changes how you experience the whole story. Only this is my life. I'm like, I had been running around like all over the world. Like I had gone through this journey and like become someone else looking for Jesus' dreams back from the dead. And here I get to find out that I've had it this whole time. It's been me? Like, cute, no. It can't be, that can't be true. I can't be God's dream back from the dead. Why? Because I'm still gay, right? I'm still gay. Like, I'm the gayest I've ever been. This is not, this isn't it. <laughs> you can't want this, right? And so, like, I had so many experiences where I had, witnessed God being an affirming, 
loving, not just ally, but like whatever is a stronger word than that for me as a gay person, but my theology and my community and my leaders and my family, like they all disagreed. So I had to like make a choice. I was like, okay, God loves me. This is awesome. I'm good there. I can't say yes to this. So I just kept doing the closeted performative thing and just kept becoming more successful. I'm putting air quotes on that. Until one day I watched a documentary on Netflix called Miss Americana. It's a documentary about Taylor Swift. If you didn't know that. Um, I was in a painful place in my life where I'm wrestling through like being at Bethel and dealing with the leadership there and just some things that aren't going well. And one day I watched this movie and halfway through the film, Taylor goes hard on gay rights. Opposing legislation in Nashville, Tennessee specifically. And she's like, this is about right and wrong. It's about human rights. I can't sit back and do nothing. She's like getting really emotional. And I have this experience that I can only relate to as being a spiritual, as being spiritual conviction. I'm like, this woman knows something that I don't. She's touched something here that I haven't. And she's right. I'm wrong. Like I'm missing something. And it has to do with the whole gay thing, but I didn't know what to do, so I just left it alone. I ignored it. I'm like, I don't know what that was, right? Just avoid, ignore, deny, survive, right? Two weeks later, I'm like pacing in my living room, praying, just like trying to process with God about how I'm going to deal with challenges at Bethel. And then this passage in the Bible from Acts 10, like, drops into my mind, which wasn't normal for me, but it happened Um, It's the story of Peter going on the roof and falling into a trance. I pulled up on my phone and read the whole thing. He falls into a trance and the sheet comes down from heaven. And it says, in the sheet are all these animals that Jewish people aren't allowed to eat, right? And God says to Peter, rise, Peter, kill, eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God God says, "Don't, don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. This happens three times and then the sheet goes back up. And all I'm aware of as I'm reading this in this moment is the feeling, this internal whatever, this feeling is the same exact feeling I had two weeks ago with Taylor Swift. Like, is this about the gay thing? Like, is God trying to tell me that being gay is okay? That's quite a leap. I don't know how to substantiate that. I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to avoid this. I'm going to deny that this is happening. (laughs) I'm going to survive, right? And then three weeks from that moment, I'm in the back of the woods of my neighborhood, and I'm at this point like literally yelling to the universe. I'm so angry and like having to manage some psychologically abusive dynamics I don't know what to do with. And I again get interrupted by a passage in the Gospels in Matthew and Luke. So I pull up my phone and read the whole thing. Um, and it starts uh, Luke 11, 50, 46. Jesus is rebuking the teachers of the law, and he says, you heap rules and requirements on the people without lifting a finger to help them. And he goes off about the prophets and their tombs and the hypocrisy of this generation, and he concludes the rebuke with, you prevent people from entering the kingdom while you yourselves refuse to enter. And when I read that final verse of that section, my life changed. Like, that was the breaking point. Um... All of a sudden, like, I'm being rebuked by Jesus. I'm with those teachers of the law. 
I'm with the religious elite. I'm the people with the platform being paid, being celebrated, being promoted. And we've got victims in the closet and people who like chose to trust us and be vulnerable and authentic and what we did to them. I didn't do that to them, but I didn't stop it. And I was platformed by this institution that was doing it. There's so many queer people at Bethel. And I knew what was happening to them. It happened to me. And it was only getting worse, right? They eventually created a ministry that was, its whole motive was to like change gay people and make them straight. And I kept ignoring and denying and avoiding what was happening. And all of a sudden, finally, this like straw that broke the camel's back, like I couldn't keep doing it anymore. I can't be part of this. So once I like internally accepted like this has to change, all I was aware of was everything I was gonna lose. My platform, my ministry, my reputation, income, access, community. I mean, that's a lot to lose all at once. Um, and I think we should ask ourselves as just like, a, as a society, like why should someone have to give up all of that for being who they are? It's like strange that we even get here, right? But anyway, so I got to wrestle through that and like, Count the cost. <laughs> Take up my cross. Ew. <laughs> like, you know? So I started coming out to people, close people in my life, um, and then nobody in my life was affirming that had any space to speak into my life, right? So everyone got to be like, oh, okay, interesting. What do we do with this? Fascinating. Um, and then I went hard on the, the theology, and I confronted it. And... When we start talking about rad being radically inclusive, this is something that I want to bring up in this conversation. I've been in a lot of inclusive spaces since I've come out publicly. And I really appreciate the effort and the intentionality and all that, right? There is something that can happen when it comes to, at least just, let's just talk this subject. We can be performatively inclusive, right? We can be told who to include and how to include them and what that looks like, and we can behave. We can do what we're told, we can follow instructions. That's one form of being inclusive, and I want to propose a deeper version of that. One that isn't performative, one that's not us doing what we're told. One that comes from somewhere more powerful, I guess, is what I'd propose. And so as I've like walked out in my journey and the version of Christianity and spirituality that I've experienced with God, I've found that getting to know God, if that's a thing, and whatever that looks like for whoever of us, um, it gets scarier and scarier. Like the further down this road I've gotten, the more scarier it's gotten, the more costly. And as I, as I had to confront my own internalized homophobia and heterosexism, I had to look like, I had to look on the inside. I had to confront what was happening in me before I could address what was going on around me, right? So in Psalm 23, I'm going to degender God in this passage, but the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. They make me lie down in green pastures. They lead me beside quiet waters or still waters. They restore my soul. When you stand next to still water, what do you see? Your reflection, yourself. Where does God take this person they're leading in this passage to a reflection and what restores their soul. They get to see themselves. It's cute, right? It's a cute idea. 
So I like that. But when we start talking about Jesus or the Christ or the kingdom, heaven, right? These are some really like particular ideas that when we say those things out loud, I think some of us have different ideas about them, right? And we could discuss whatever. For me, when we talk about the kingdom, I've had to wrestle through what I, from a fundamental place, like at this point, have to believe about the kingdom, what the kingdom even is and how it works. Remember that rebuke. You prevent people from entering the kingdom while you yourselves refuse to enter. And something that I've had to face and wrestle through in my own process of being a gay person who cares about, loves God, I didn't want to enter the kingdom. I didn't want to. Why? When Jesus talked about the kingdom, they're like, hey, when's the kingdom of heaven going to come? When is the kingdom of God going to come, right? Is what the Pharisees are asking him. And he's like, the kingdom is not something to be observed. You're not going to say it's over there. Or here it is, right? Because the kingdom is within you. And I'd like to propose the kingdom is a little bit more difficult to enter than some of us realize. And it's not a space. It's not a group. It's not a location. The kingdom is a mirror. And for gay people, queer people, being raised in an evangelical space, they are taught that their mirror is hell, is demonic, is perverse, is abominable, is, is sin. That's a really hard reflection to accept, right? You were taught to hate yourself. No one says those words but that's the eventual outcome of that process if you follow it to its most logical conclusion. And so on my journey of trying to figure out how to become inclusive, how to confront the stuff that I'd been taught for so long, I kept coming up against a mirror. I wanted to enter the kingdom. I wanted to stop preventing people from being able to get in. But part of the way I was going to do that was I had to Look at myself. I had to face the things about me that I'd been taught to hate and hide and avoid, ignore and deny. I had to look at them, not just observe, not just judge or criticize or condemn. I had to do something scarier. I had to find love for that person. I had to redefine what does love even look like? What does affirmation look like? What does embracing a queer person look like? And I had to start with me. And it was scary and painful and lonely, right? Um, there wasn't a ton of clear example around me in the world that I was in. But for what it's worth, I want to propose, like, as a community here, I hope that we can graduate beyond performative inclusion and just doing the right things and saying the right things and not saying the wrong things and doing the right things for the right people. I hope we can get past that I hope that's like, that's not the standard. I hope we can actually evolve to a place where we are authentically inclusive, where we don't need to be told who to embrace, who to love. We don't need to be convinced why. We don't need essays and PowerPoints and doctorates and books to convince us to include people. I wrote some notes here that I didn't want to like say wrong or like miss saying them um, 
my queer experience compelled me to, to look at me, right? To look at the terrifying truth about who I am. And it's actually not my queer identity that was terrifying. It's the reality that I'm loved beyond merit, period. That I'm intrinsically and completely lovable without any additives or accessories or alteration. I'm not lovable, lovable because I'm gay. I'm not lovable because I'm smart or kind. I'm lovable because I'm alive. The very breath within us is verification of our worthiness, of our lovability. You don't have to have certain parameters or circumstances or conditions to be lovable. Guess what? You just, you already are because you exist, because you're alive. We have to include ourselves in the narrative of love. Like, we can talk about other people and their plights and their experiences and be like, yeah, we can love them, but what happens when you're talking about the mirror? And I'm not just talking about queer people. Like, you might be straight as an arrow or a nail or I don't know, whatever, straight things. I'm not very familiar with straightness. <laughs> you might be straight. The kingdom is still a mirror for you. And you might not have experienced heterosexism and homophobia as, like, barring restrictions for your existence, but there are parts of you that you've been taught you're not allowed to love. Forget love, you're not even allowed to look at. You're not allowed to be honest about. You're not allowed to admit. And I would like to propose to you that the kingdom, if the kingdom is anything, the kingdom is that. The kingdom is you. Is you honest, without the additives, without the alterations, without the ceaseless striving of worth-producing accomplishments to protect yourself from the risk of loving you. Like I've done my whole life. And I can't help but feel like, I know I'm just talking to Grace Point, but just like maybe church at large, specifically Christians, the path ahead for us, if we want to actually be radically inclusive, we have to face ourselves. That is the gate, that is the door, that is the access point. Like, if we can't love and embrace us, then we only have performative inclusion to offer other people. So I don't know what it is for you. And for a lot of us, I don't know why, but sex comes up. Sex, sex, I'm saying it, I'm saying sex out loud, sex. <laughs> Sexual things, sex things, pleasure, desire, sex. I am uncomfortable. I don't want to say that all out here. <laughs> Why not? Our humanity has been vilified. We've been duped. We've been tricked into learning how to hate certain things about ourselves purposefully. For what? For acceptance? <laughs> to, to have access to the kingdom? I would like to propose to you that's a really poor translation of the Bible. I would like to propose to you that if you want to enter the kingdom, like a little child, you're gonna have to get honest with that reflection. You're gonna have to get honest with what you're looking at. How much of that person are you willing to see? How much of them is allowed to exist in whatever ways? 
And I'm saying this as an indictment to myself. I'm still having to unpack this, you know? I'm still having to wrestle out because I'm scared of me. I'm scared of how lovable I am. It's terrifying. It's weakening, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I don't have an answer, right? I don't have, sorry, I'm supposed to preach to you about being radically inclusive and I don't know how to do it. Except for, I know the starting point for all of us is by still waters. It's not like a Zen meditative state. I think it's a place of like radical willingness to be honest about who you are and being willing to see you. Thank you.